Welcome to EDI on BIV, Business in Vancouver's podcast on equity, diversity, and inclusion in BC business. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor of Business in Vancouver, and we're broadcasting today from the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Chantal Krish, CEO of KidSafe and an equity advocate, joins me today as a co-host. She is also the former Director of Communications, Programs and Outreach at the Office of the Lieutenant Governor, which I mention because today we're joined by the Honourable Janet Austin, Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia. Welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining EDI on BIV. Well, thank you so much for the invitation, Haley. It's a real pleasure to be here. Now, we know that championing equity, diversity, and inclusion is one of your focus areas, along with reconciliation and democracy and civic engagement. Why did you select EDI as one of your priorities? Well, Haley, I'm, I guess I would say that that's something that I have uh, worked on and, and attempted to champion throughout my professional life. Um, I have had the, the privilege, I think, of work that suits my skills and has been intellectually engaging, but also socially meaningful, and that's always been important to me. But I would say that my, my values and my views about what's important in life and society have largely been shaped by work that I've done as a volunteer with a pretty broad range of organizations. So, of course, there are the wonderful business organizations that you and I both are uh, associated with um, the Business Council and, and, of course, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. But I've also served on the board of Mosaic, which is an immigrant and refugee serving organization. I was on the founding board of the Dr. Peter AIDS Foundation, uh, the Women's Health Research Institute, um, the Canadian Pediatric Society. So all of these things has, have, you know, over the years really given me a perspective on the different challenges in society and how they can be addressed in different ways. Absolutely, Your Honor, and it's wonderful to hear um, and, and just learn more about sort of your robust experience and how that lends itself well to, to where you are today. Um, I'm sure our listeners would be quite interested to hear what that transition from working in community, in the business community, in, in you know, the, the Vancouver and broader community as well, championing these issues, how that's been moving towards um the Office of the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia and being part of the vice regal community. How has that transition been, and particularly in relation to equity, diversity, and inclusion? Well, you know, it's interesting, Chantel, because it's the last thing in the world I ever would have expected. I, I you know, it's not something I, I particularly aspired to, and I was really very, very surprised to, you know, to get the call. Um, but it is an enormous privilege to serve as Lieutenant Governor. And, um, you know, you're correct. I think um, my my time as the CEO of the YWCA, uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion has been um, such a key focus of my work. Uh, and, and I felt um, that it was important for me to be able to continue um, to champion issues around equity in this role. And I wouldn't have actually taken the job if I hadn't satisfied myself that I could make that happen. So, so um, you know, there are constraints, um, as there are in, in any role. Uh, I do have to be conscious of not segueing into um, the legitimate territory of duly elected officials 
and, and so I you know, have to be careful about engaging directly in policy discussions. But the role of lieutenant governor comes with an, uh, a wonderful platform. And I think of it as a, as a neutral convening platform that is above um, partisan debate. Uh, and, and so I attempt to use it to bring people together, to have conversations, meaningful conversations, to, to, to broker link, linkages on some of the big uh, issues uh, facing society, both in British Columbia and frankly, globally as well. One of the topics we spend quite a bit of time talking about on the show is how you facilitate change within very established organizations or very entrenched systems. <laughs> and I would love to hear your thoughts as part of a monarchy, a monarchical system, one that has very deep roots um, and one that's talked a lot about in the context of reconciliation and how we facilitate change. What's it like to champion EDI and how do you think about sort of the legacy of your position and mm -hmm. the legacy of what's happened in society with where you'd like to see society go and what you're trying to advocate for as we move forward? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting and, and I think also a very important question. And I think I will answer it in two ways. Um, first of all, I think it's important to, um, it's important to me to be able to communicate to people the fact that the role of Lieutenant Governor is uh, an important and a really significant component in the overall governance um, of the province of British Columbia. And I think of the fact that we have in Canada a constitutional monarchy, uh, I see it as really a stabilizing characteristic of our society because we have a separation of state and government, which you don't have in a republic like the United States. And so the, the, the vice regal role, um, it's often referred to as the, as the reserve powers of the crown, are very seldom deployed, but they exist for a reason. And they are a check, you know, perhaps the only check, I shouldn't say the only check, but they're an important check on, on the power of the first minister. So I see that as a, as a stabilizing feature in our society. And I think that uh, you can see when you look around the world that many, uh, some of the societies that have actually managed change and managed the pandemic best actually are constitutional monarchies. So I try to present my role as Lieutenant Governor in a broader perspective than simply as you could say an adjunct of, of, of the Royal family. It has an important uh, stabilizing characteristic. It also connects us to a history of parliamentary democracy, uh, to uh, a tradition of respect for the rule of law. It connects, it connects us to the commonwealths, which are countries which are bound together by common values, uh, values that, that Canada shares. And I think that are uh, fundamental to the conversation that we're having today. So that's one part. The second part I would say is yes, it is, um, a colonial, uh, long-standing colonial institution. Uh, however, I do think that because of that, I have a special responsibility to be a vocal and a visible advocate for reconciliation in all its dimensions. And I certainly have attempted to do that. Um, there's also, I think, an important relationship between uh, Indigenous peoples, First Nations, and the Crown, in that they see their relationship being essentially with the Crown. And so that, I think, is something that um, 
further um, impels me um, to build positive relations in that respect. And so, you know, we have done a lot of work at Government House. We launched the first BC Reconciliation Awards. The intention of that is to uh, not only showcase individuals and organizations that have made an extraordinary contribution to reconciliation, but also to identify practices um, and exemplars that can be that can be used as models uh, for others to follow. So that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but hopefully it gives you a bit of a perspective. It sure does. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, the last two years, and even before that, but particularly in the last two years, there's been so many social and economic movements and changes in our society. And so the issues relating to and integrated within equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging are in many ways at the forefront of discussions in ways that we might not have seen, you know, when you and I even were yep. at YWCA. So on one side, it's it's quite inspiring, even though this is coming out of some, some significant civil unrest for very good reason. I'd be really interested just to hear your perspective on where we're at at this point in time of our society and how does the opportunity around equity, diversity and inclusion play out now more than ever? And, and I guess building on that, what can we all do as leaders and active members in our community to move this work forward? Another really good question. Um, so, I mean, we've been through an extraordinary time. There's no question about it. Uh, when we think about the challenges around the pandemic, of course, that's very prominent. But we also have had um, a period of very intense public discourse um, around a number of the issues that, that you reference. So that has, I think, been challenging for many people, but it's a very positive thing. So I was, I have been very interested to better understand the shifts in society as a result of the past few years, the cultural shifts. And uh, we had planned to have a vice regal conference this past fall, which went slightly by the wayside due to some of the challenges with the pandemic and, and also the floods in BC. Um, but we took the opportunity to commission a national survey using a 2015 Community Foundations of Canada survey as a baseline to really look at what are those trends and shifts in community connection and also some essentially values. And I, um, we released the first phase of it yesterday. It's an Angus Reid survey. But I want to say that there, there are some concerning viewpoints for sure, but there's also some positive results. And uh, one of which I'll mention, um, this I think is part of the phase two results, but uh, we see that about 70% of Canadians actually see, feel that we should do more for reconciliation. And we also see a positive shift in people's um, understanding and, and willingness, I think, to embrace um, uh, some of the social equity movements that have been quite prominent. Um, we also see that in the report um, that was produced in January by Blueprint, which is that uh, organization um, of um, UBC researchers who are looking at some of the challenges around masculinity and how as a society we support men to bring their best to their relationships, their roles as parents um, and their communities. So we see that there has been actually positive movement in workplaces, greater re receptivity to speaking up and speaking out about harassment, um, gender equality, LGBTQ rights. So these are positive shifts. So cultural changes, Chantelle and I know well, 
is a huge issue for organizations, and it's something that needs to be worked on in a systemic, a systematic way, also in a sustained way. Um, and one of the projects we have at the Lieutenant Governor's Office, and again, this is something that Chantel and I have worked on together in the past, um, is flowing from the Different Together campaign that we launched a couple of years ago, where we asked British Columbians to take a pledge um, committing to the foundational values of diversity and inclusion, um, but also committing to oppose racism and hate in all its forms. So that was very successful. We're now at the stage where we will shortly be launching a web-based platform, which houses a whole variety of resources, which will be helpful, I think, to organizations in navigating that cultural shift journey. You mentioned a number of great resources there, and we'll actually have Blueprint on the show very soon to talk about the research that they're doing. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Do you think that society at large really understands some of the factors better than they have before that contribute to a lack of equity in certain parts of society or an absence of equity? Um, I, I mean, I think, I think that, that overall, there is a growing awareness. Now that awareness is not gonna be held consistently across all, all sectors in society, across all demographics. But I think some of, the, some of the survey work that I've referred to shows that there is in fact a positive shift. I don't know if the two of you would have seen, but the um, John Halliwell's World Happiness Report just came out uh, last week. And it shows that there is a global increase in um, a number of the key markers of pro-social behavior. And so, so I think, you know, there, there is evidence of, I think, a, a pretty constructive and a positive shift. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were all about social cohesion and collaboration and collective action for the collective good. That did seem to fray, and I was concerned about that. However, um, I think that the effect of that fraying and the effect of the backlash that you might see from movements like Me Too is actually smaller than the noise um, that, that might make them appear on, on social media and, and in, in the sort of the more prominent public discourse. And I think Blueprint can speak to that quite effectively. I think the Me Too backlash is something like three to 5%, um, which in Canada is much less than what you would see in, for example, the United States. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, when we, I just think back to even the Women's March here in Vancouver and how, broadly attended that was and you know just a grassroots thing and it, it seems like there's been a lot of social organizing since then um, from that time to where we are today and I find it incredibly inspiring to to see people who might not necessarily have felt like they have a place to be part of these mm -hmm. gatherings but also dialogues to lean in and expose, I think, what is a level of vulnerability, you know, and we see that in business as well, that if we can arrive at a place where we know that change needs to happen and acknowledge that we're not there yet, but that we're open to exploring these different things, that's the best place from which we can move forward. So I, I, I'm really happy to hear that the resources around Different Together are being created and launched and, and looking forward to amplifying that. Um, one of the things that I know you and I have talked a lot about is, is sort of the next generation, young youth leadership. You've done quite a bit of work um, 
empowering young voices throughout the course of your career. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, do you believe that different generations think about the efforts around EDI differently and sort of what are you seeing that's encouraging and that we might be able to all learn from? Um, I, I think, I think, yes, uh, different generations do see these things differently. And, and that's, I think, a matter of scale. When I said that overall, I, I think we're seeing a shift in a, in a more positive direction around better understanding of the, of the need for, for, for cultural change. Um, and, and the, um, but, but that effect, I think, is stronger among young people. And that's certainly borne out by the results of various surveys that I've looked at, certainly the one that we've commissioned ourselves. Um, so, so um, yes, I think one of the challenges, and I'm going to speak to the challenges organizationally, is that some of these topics can continue to be very challenging for people. And um, people need guidance, you know. Um, cultural standards within organizations are shifting and have shifted, and that's a positive thing. Um, but I think what we need to do is to work to create safe spaces for people to have these conversations in a guided way that allows questions to be asked and answered and allows people, creates the conditions for people to be able to um, ask those questions, express their those views without fear of saying the wrong thing, you know? So I think that there's a lot of that in society right now. People want to be helpful. They want to move in the right direction. They're afraid of putting a foot wrong or putting a foot in the mouth. And so whatever we can do to create an environment that is more receptive and more forgiving, frankly, uh, of the inevitable mistakes that we all make when we go through big changes in society and when we go through the, pro the, through the process of, of understanding. So I think generally younger people are, are more open to this. It's been more a part of their, it's been more a part of their context, their upbringing. Um, but we, I, I do believe that there's a positive shift across the demographics. And to follow up on what you were just saying, Your Honor, I wonder if part of this is to focus on the opportunity and framing this as an opportunity to do better business, to bring on board new perspectives, to be more collaborative than we ever have, and not to shy away from deeply examining some of the issues, but there's a lot of positive that can come from some of the shifts we're talking about. Yeah, no question. I think, you know, referring to the latest results of the Edelman Trust Barometer too, you see the expectation that employees have generally uh, for their leaders to really show leadership, um, not just on their business objectives, but on the social justice objectives as well. So that is an expectation. Um, and I, I think uh, it, it's one that I think business really needs to, needs to embrace uh, wholeheartedly. Um, no longer can you stick just to your own very narrow lane. So uh, also, I think people respond well to the kind of vulnerability that Chantel referred to, the authenticity and the honesty that goes along with that. Um, recognizing that when you're in a leadership position, um, you're, we're all human, we all make mistakes, and the better able we are to acknowledge those mistakes and to acknowledge that we can learn from them, I think the greater... Uh, opportunity we have to build real to build a kind of real trust that creates space for those genuine conversations that I think f facilitates um, our ability to 
find those places of compromise in between the extremes of public opinion. Absolutely. I think bringing diverse voices together can have nothing but positive results for so many reasons, if anything, just to help inform our own opinions, but it also just, that's how we need to work together to advance these big social For sure. You know, I often will, will, will say um, that it's very comfortable speaking with people who share our views, um, but if we only do that, we're only ever really speaking to ourselves. So it's fundamentally important that we make a conscious effort to put ourselves in positions where we need to engage with people whose views and experience are different. And when we find ourselves in those positions that we make a sincere and honest effort to understand what it is that informs their views uh, and not to approach those conversations with the uh, expectation that we're going to have a superior argument and win, um, but with a, a, an openness to hearing what they have to say and a willingness to be convinced when presented with superior reasoning or argumentation um, or, or really whatever. Yeah, that's a great um, leadership quality to have for sure. Um, Moving to towards sort of where we're at and forward thinking, one of the questions that we were really interested in is sort of what are the risks of for us as a society if we don't take issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion seriously enough? Well, I think uh, I, I think we can see the kind of fracturing of society that is extremely damaging. Um, I think that that leads down a road where it makes it very difficult for dem democracies to function effectively. Um, it leads to greater polarization, to less willingness to listen to each other, uh, perhaps to greater reliance on disinformation, more receptivity to disinformation. So all of these things, I think, um, undermine the stability of society as a whole. Uh, they undermine the effective functioning of democracy and they're isolating. So it's really fundamental, not just to um, pursuing business objectives successfully, but to maintaining the stability and security in, in our society, both, both in Canada and globally, that we make a sincere effort to address some of these great challenges. I mean, you see where these things go. I've, I've just spoken really about differences in opinion, but Inequality is a huge is a is a huge challenge um, that is a threat to global security. So we need to we also need to find ways to move forward on those huge global challenges. The existential threat of climate change, uh, which we are you know we need to grapple with. We need to address much more aggressively, I think, than we have. Um, but unless we can find ways to speak with each other and the less we can find ways to, to, to recognize the challenges faced by people whose lives are different, uh, we won't be successful. Thinking about the pandemic, and you mentioned inequality, I mean, we've seen how COVID-19 has exacerbated inequalities that existed. We've also seen targeted racism and hate crimes during the pandemic. On the other end, it's also prompted many people, I think, to rethink what matters to them and what our values are as families, as colleagues, as a society. As we hopefully, touch wood, begin and continue to move out of the pandemic into a different operating environment, what's sort of on your mind in terms of equity, diversity, and inclusion? What do you hope we maybe 
hold on to uh, lessons from the pandemic? What do you hope we maybe move beyond? Well, you know, I think we have seen some, well, we've seen some absolute feats of public administration. And I think people have a better understanding of, of the functions and the role of government and the, and the value of government when we go through enormous um, uh, public challenges such as such as we have. Um, but we've also seen, I think, unprecedented um, collaboration among, you know, traditional competitors. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, scientists, for example, that have shared information um, that they might have previously considered to be proprietary. And we've seen some great examples of collaboration um, at the political level. And I, I think here in British Columbia, um, we have we certainly have seen that. So it is my hope that the kind of opportunities to build relationships across uh, partisan divides um, and, and across competitive divides, um, can, you know, can, can continue. And I think the relationships that have been built through this time is, is the kind of the, the building of trust that actually creates fertile ground uh, for those, those relationships, I think, to continue and to build. So I think we've also uh, had a, a just generally a better understanding of the people upon whom we rely, you know, to do our frontline tasks or manage frontline issues that they go quietly about their business without, you know, much fanfare or, or, or reward. And I think we know better how to value the people who perform those roles in society. And I hope that that will, you know, that will continue um, as well. Um, so I do think that there's a lot positive that has come from the pandemic. It's also interesting to me, and I'm going to refer to some McKinsey and Company research. Um, they did some research, this is a few years ago, where they looked at the nine qualities of leadership that were most effective in managing periods of change. And that is certainly what we have been through. So there are nine qualities, and this I find interesting. Five are practiced more commonly by women than by men. Two are practiced more commonly by men than by women. And two are practiced equally. So I think this is interesting because none of these qualities, they're all important and they're all needed in different circumstances and at different times. Um, but I think this gives a little bit of a perspective on some of the qualities that are more associated with women, such as role modeling, um, mentorship, collective decision-making. Those are in fact extremely important. Uh, and, and I think that there is perhaps a growing willingness to recognize the value of what have been associated with female leadership characteristics. Um, you know, in, in the general kind of playbook of, of leaders generally. So I think those are positive shifts as well. Our understanding of leadership is shifting. And, and that is evident, I think, in this whole, um, the point that you've made about vulnerability, leaders being willing to show their vulnerability. Um, so I think that fits with that mold. So our expectations of leaders have changed our expectations for leadership style have changed and those are good things. We're coming to a close sadly of our discussion. And so just for a final question, I think something that would really be of great interest to the people listening to this program are, what do you think is, you know, if you had one piece of advice for business leaders in our community, what would you say would be the greatest place that they can focus on to have impact? 
Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, that's really a big question. And, and because there are so many places and, and different organizations have different skills, different knowledge. And I think that's a, that's a question that has to be sort of answered internally. But what I would hope um, that leaders in organizations would be willing to do would be to look beyond their short-term financial interests and recognize the value of taking a long-term perspective and looking at their role and their responsibility to the broader society. So that can manifest in different ways for different organizations. Um, it's, it's, it's more about making that effort, I think, than it is necessarily about picking one particular thing. I mean, we know there are, you know, obviously key kind of existential threats as a society that we need to focus on. Climate change is the obvious one. Um, economic equality and equality of opportunity really is another. Um, but, but again, these things, depending on where you are and who you are and what knowledge and skills you have, you can deploy differently, I think. But I think if people will make the effort, if boards and leaders will establish, will make the effort to establish a direction, and I think also engagement, um, and, and I mean genuine engagement uh, with employees, with stakeholders is really key. Communication takes time. It's not something that you can dispense with quickly and tick it off a list. You need to make a sustained ongoing commitment. Um, but if you do, I think there will be great benefits and great value, not only to society as a whole, but to your organization and to you individually. Your Honor, thank you for your ongoing sustained commitment to championing EDI uh, before your current position and, of course, in your current role. And thank you for joining us on our show. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Haley and Chantel. Um, great, to, great to speak with you and hope to see you in person sometime soon. Looking forward to in-person connection very, very much after two years of not having that. Chantel, thank you so much for joining the show as a co-host, as always. My pleasure. Thanks, Haley. Joining us today is our guest, the Honorable Janet Austin, Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, and Chantal Krish, CEO of KidSafe. This has been EDI on BIV. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor of Business in Vancouver. You can find more episodes in this series at biv.com slash audio.